<clears throat> we now get on to the third chapter, which is called Sati. In this chapter, I continue to investigate the definition, quote-unquote, part of the Satipatthana Sutta. As a way of providing some background for Sati, the third quality mentioned in the definition, I briefly survey the general approach to knowledge in early Buddhism. In order to evaluate Sati as a mental quality, the main task of the present chapter, I go on to explore its typical characteristics from different angles, and also to contrast it with concentration, samadhi. So firstly, the early Buddhist approach to knowledge. The philosophical setting of ancient India was influenced by three main approaches to the acquisition of knowledge. The Brahmins relied mainly on ancient sayings, handed down by oral transmission, as authoritative sources of knowledge. While in the Upanishads, one finds philosophical reasoning used as a central tool for developing knowledge. In addition to these two, a substantial number of the wandering ascetics and contemplatives of that time considered extrasensory perception and intuitive knowledge gained through meditative experiences as important means for the acquisition of knowledge. These three approaches can be summarized as oral tradition, logical reasoning, and direct intuition. When questioned on his own epistemological position, and I looked up epistemology just to double check. <laughs> so epistemology is the nature and study of knowledge. So this is also being a dressed up PhD thesis. It does occasionally use these very long words that even if you have English as a first language, you have to check up on. <clears throat> so that, uh, I think that's a helpful, um, uh, say, sketching out. You have these three different sources of knowledge in ancient India from the Brahmins uh, passing on uh, remembered sayings and um, interpreted by the sort of Brahmin priesthood. You, the scriptures of the Upanishads, which were based on logic um, and reasoning, philosophical reasoning. And then the last one is the, the uh, yogis and the uh, intuitive uh, experiential knowledge coming from their own meditation. When questioned on his own epistemological position, i.e. how the Buddha knew things, the Buddha placed himself in the third category, i.e. among those who emphasized the development of direct personal knowledge. Although he did not completely reject oral tradition or logical reasoning as ways of acquiring knowledge, he was keenly aware of their limitations. The problem with oral tradition is that material committed to memory might be wrongly remembered. Moreover, even as material that has been well remembered might uh, sorry, moreover, even material that has been well remembered might be false and misleading. Similarly, logical reasoning might seem convincing, but then turn out to be unsound. Moreover, even sound reasoning might prove false and misleading if it's based on false premises. On the other hand, what has not been well remembered, or what does not appear to be perfectly well reasoned, might turn out to be true. So if you can follow that. Uh, <clears throat> so it's pointing out that sort of, uh, conceptual knowledge um, is, uh, is not reliable. Um, and, um, the, uh, and things that are worked out by reasoning. Logic, um, uh, in its own right, you know, logic can have... You can have something that uh, has a sort of perfect logical form. It all it all adds up, 
But if it's based on a on a false foundation, or if there's a wrong assumption at the beginning, then even though your your logical pattern that, were, that is uh, clearly and perfectly described might all fit absolutely, it might not actually match reality. And uh, as in his last sentence here, he says, uh, on the other hand, what has not been well remembered, or what does not appear to be perfectly well reasoned, might turn out to be true. <laughs> so it might be that uh, even though we haven't got a, a clear picture of why things are the way they are. Um, you haven't remembered the the, uh, the particular teaching accurately, um, but it might turn out that how you understand things to be is true anyway. Uh, uh, Ajahn Chah was quite well known for misquoting the scriptures and sort of uh, <coughs> blurring a few stories together and making a, a, a kind of composite, uh, as many of us are prone to do from time to time. And uh, so even though it didn't actually, even sometimes when you find yourself saying, well, the Buddha said, and then someone says, well, um, have you checked up on that, Ajahn? <laughs> then you realize, oh, actually, the Buddha didn't say that at all. I've been, I've been, <laughs> I've been quoting him for years incorrectly. Uh-huh. <laughs> Look at that. It just happened to me a couple of days ago with Ajahn Jayasaro, who very politely pointed out some. I'll get on to that in a minute. <laughs> uh, some kind of... Uh, Slightly false, uh, faulty statement of mine in, a, in an essay that I wrote. However, uh, what does not appear to be perfectly well reasoned might turn out to be true. So I'll keep that in the, my back pocket for Ajahn Jayasaro just in case I need it. <laughs> Similar reservations hold true for direct knowledge gained in meditation. In fact, according to the Buddha's penetrating analysis in the Brahmajala Sutta, sole reliance on direct extrasensory knowledge has caused a considerable number of mistaken views among contemporary practitioners. The Buddha once illustrated the dangers of relying entirely on one's own direct experience with the help of a parable. In this parable, the king had several blind men each touch a different part of an elephant. So this appears in the... the in the Sangyutta Nikaya, so uh, this is a part of the, the Buddhist canon as well. When questioned on the nature of the elephant, each blind man gave an entirely different account as the only right and true description of an elephant. Although what was experienced by each of the blind men was empirically true, yet their personal direct experience had revealed only part of the picture. So that, the, as probably most of you are familiar with that, that analogy, uh, one, uh, one person takes hold of the leg and says, oh, an elephant is very like a tree, uh, someone takes hold of the ear and uh, they say, oh, no, no, an elephant is like a fan, or they take hold of the, uh, the tail and say, no, 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 an elephant is like a paintbrush, or they take hold of the trunk and say, no, 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 no an elephant is like a snake. And each, uh, uh, each person uh, sort of is speaking according to their own experience, but yet they're, because they're blind, they can't see the whole picture. The mistake each made was to wrongly conclude that his direct knowledge gained through personal experience was the only truth so that anyone disagreeing must be mistaken. This parable goes to show that even direct personal experience might reveal only a part of the picture, and therefore should not be grasped dogmatically as an absolute ground for knowledge. That is, emphasis on direct experience need not entail a complete rejection of oral tradition and reasoning as auxiliary sources of knowledge. Nevertheless, direct experience constitutes the central epistemological tool in early Buddhism. So, that so, so direct experience um, uh, is uh, the main tool, and um, the the key teaching on this um, on this area is what's called the Kalama Sutta, which is uh, probably the most significant of uh, Buddhist teachings in relationship to 
bridging the the uh, <coughs> the presence of Buddha Dhamma in the East and with the Western uh, skeptical materialist uh, logical um, patterns of thinking, um, and particularly had made uh, the Buddha's teaching very uh, accessible to um, those who have a skeptical, uh, also anti-religious, non-theistic turn of mind. Insofar as the uh, uh, the uh, he doesn't go into it in detail here, but I'll just um, quote it for you that. Uh, the story goes that the Buddha arrived in this town called Kesaputta. It's a modern-day uh, India. It's a little village called Kesariya. Um, and uh, he um, uh, arrived there, and then the, the villagers from uh, Kesaputta came to see him, and they asked him what his teaching was. And, um, and uh, he... Uh, was in conversation with them and they said, well, you know, we're, we're really confused and things are difficult because we get so many yogis and wanderers and teachers, sannyasins coming through here and every one of them speaks with great confidence and says that their particular philosophy is true and they can all argue their case and that we listen and we're, in, we're interested in what's true and what's real um, but we're in doubt because their, their philosophies don't match each other. You know, one, one says this, another one says something different, another one says a third thing altogether. So uh, we're in doubt, we're confused. And then the Buddha uses this wonderful phrase saying, um, uh, Kalamas, um, uh, it is appropriate to doubt because you doubt that which, which should be doubted. <laughs> so he said, well, you know, no wonder you're in doubt because you, you don't know. And so it's appropriate to doubt because you, are, um, you, uh, you don't see, you don't understand for yourselves. And so then this uh, attitude of, of questioning and curiosity is, is quite appropriate. Then he lays out these ten criteria. Um, he said... You know, that uh, the, the way that, that we acquire knowledge. He, and uh, he's, uh, he says for each of these ten that uh, these, this shouldn't be as, uh, the, the basis for, um, for say, uh, uh, taking things to be true. And one is on oral tradition. Uh, one uh, is what is uh, hammered out by uh, inductive or deductive logic. Uh, one is because it's what your parents um, believe in and what they've told you. Or another is um, what is there in the holy books that have been handed down from one generation to another. Another is that just because an authoritative teacher uh, says it to you. So it spells out these you know, ten different um, ways that knowledge will be passed on or people would, would uh, tend to take things to be true. And he said none of those should be, should be taken out of hand, but rather you should listen to what somebody has to say and then put their teaching into practice. You know, try it out and then then what you see leads to benefit, leads to uh, peacefulness, leads to harmony uh, uh, for yourself and others, then take that and use that. And what you see leads to disharmony, to confusion, and to, um, to difficulty and distress for yourself and others, then that to, to leave aside. So it's an extremely pragmatic, in a way, a, a completely pragmatic approach towards knowledge. And uh, in, in that list of 10 <coughs> different um, Criteria. He pretty much spells out you know, every single thing that we, we you know, the way that we usually get uh, facts, or we usually learn, or study, or or find out what's true. And he uh, he um, is almost unique in uh, in in that respect of saying, even though I'm supposed to be a great spiritual teacher and uh, people tend to believe me, you shouldn't believe me. So it's it's. Uh, often touted, sometimes in a, a bit of a triumphalist way, you know, the Buddha was the only spiritual teacher who told people not to believe him. <laughs> you know, which is not a very helpful attitude. So what they call triumphalist um, 
we're better than the rest kind of attitude. But it is, it is somewhat unique in, that the, in the very process of saying, don't believe what I say. <laughs> uh, he, uh, and even what he's saying, like, don't believe that either. You know, that, uh, that, uh, don't believe the Kalama Sutta just because the Buddha's saying it either. Because if you then grasp the Kalama Sutta and say, yeah, this is the truth, <laughs> that's the way, even that is uh, that's grasping things unwisely. But rather to, okay, let's try that out and see, we'll see what the result is. So it's using um, the personal experience, but informed by these other resources. So what your parents have passed on to you, or what people around you believe, or what's logical, what um, is there in the in the holy scriptures that have uh, been uh, passed on or are given credibility by the people around you. To so take it, use it, uh, uh, listen to it, uh, apply it, and then see what actually works. See, see. Uh, and judge for yourself. So it's a, a in that way, it's a it's a religion both of uh, uh, experience uh, and also of personal responsibility. You're not placing the authority out there in the book or in the guru or in the uh, in the belief of the people around you, but it's a it's a taking responsibility for your own path. So that's um, it's sometimes it's a lot easier just to believe somebody else. <laughs> And uh, particularly when someone's very confident and says, this is the truth, this is the way. Yeah. That it, it's, it, uh, it makes life easier, but it makes it worse, in my humble opinion. <laughs> there, some people, uh, uh, they, they don't want the truth. They just want to have something that uh, is convenient to hang on to, and that's their, that's their own business. But it's not something that uh, is genuinely liberating. Personally, I'm not interested in that. In the in the San Francisco Bay Area, they're very fond of um, clever bumper stickers. They're not so common in this country or in Europe, but they little sort of stickers that you put on the back of your car so that the car be- people in the car behind you can read your statement to the universe. <laughs> <laughs> and so, one of the ones that was uh, quite popular uh, is a few years ago now was, um, "I have given up my search for truth, and I'm now looking for a good fantasy." <laughs> it was a very popular one. The the one that I thought was that was neatest was was most characteristic of Bay Area mentality was me somewhere else tomorrow finally happy and okay. <laughs> and you could you could almost sort of see the people traveling behind. Yeah, that's right. That's that's what I want. Me somewhere else tomorrow finally happy and okay. But anyway, to continue. Nevertheless, direct experience constitutes the central epistemological tool in early Buddhism. Epistemology being the nature and study of knowledge. You wouldn't have forgotten that already, I'm sure. According to a passage in the Salayatana Sangyutta, that's the connected discourses about the six senses, it is in particular the practice of satipatthana that can lead to an undistorted direct experience of things as they truly are, independent of oral tradition and reasoning. <clears throat> Thus, clearly, Satipatthana is an empirical tool of central importance in the pragmatic theory of knowledge in early Buddhism. Applying the epistemological position of early Buddhism to actual practice, 
oral tradition and reasoning, in the sense of some degree of knowledge and reflection about the Dhamma, these form the supporting conditions for a direct experience of reality through the practice of Satipatthana. So I'll say that again, just in case you didn't get it. So applying the epistemological position of early Buddhism to actual practice, so basically, okay, direct practice and uh, direct experience, that's the the basis of knowledge, Um, uh, and informed by oral tradition and reasoning, uh, in the sense of some degree of knowledge and reflection about the Dhamma, these form the supporting conditions for a direct experience of reality, through the practice of Satipatthana, so that those are the, in a way that the the sort of informing spirits or the the, the thing the qualities that most solidly support the practice of, of Satipatthana, and the the direct experience of reality, is that um, trusting your uh, trusting your own experience, uh, using what you get from oral tradition and reasoning, and um, uh, and some degree of knowledge and reflection about the Dhamma. So these are the. The, 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 kind of the tripod, the, the, the three supports for the development of Satipatthana and, uh, and leading to the direct experience of reality. Yes? Um, something I'm a little bit confused about. You were saying in the Brahmajala Sutta, Buddha said that direct experience is not sufficient for getting to true. Right? That is one of the. Well, in the Brahmajala Sutta, well, there's a, a quite a long list of. Um, it's the 62 kinds of wrong view. The Brahmajalas, part of the Brahmajalas is a huge sutta, very, very long. But part of it is the 62 kinds of wrong view. And so, say, for example, the Buddha says uh, certain beings, um, ha- in their, uh, they were um, <coughs> uh, born, in a, uh, born into a Brahma world, and a being who appears in an empty Brahma world arises in that world and says, you know, I am the only being. Um, you know, this is this is my Brahma world. You know, I am the only being here. Yeah. Uh, uh, would wouldn't it be good if other beings arose here? And then other beings are born into that Brahma world, and they think, oh, I wish them to appear, and these other beings appeared. I must have created them. I am the omnipotent. I am the omnipotent. I am the creator. And then the ones. So the one who appeared first thinks, I am the creator. I am the the one who has brought these beings into existence. I'm the one. And then those other beings who have appeared later think, oh, well, uh, this being was here first, and, and then we appeared later, so he must be our creator. And then the, the Buddha says, so then beings who have had that experience in a Brahma world, when they, uh, they fall from that Brahma world in a later birth, they are born into the realm of human beings, then they, uh, they will tend to adopt a theistic view. They will look towards a, 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 de- a supreme deity. As being the, the, their creator and their, um, their the the origin of their being uh, as a belief. So and so that um, that sort of experience that they've had from the Brahma world is informing their belief uh, in the present life. But it's a it, it's a mistaken perception that that Brahma God didn't actually create them. So that it's the, but their experiences that oh well. We appeared here, and this great being was here first. So that being must have created us, and he's and that, that being is telling us that, that, that they created us. So it must be true. So that uh, it's, it's one example of of a, how a uh, a mistaken perception then becomes taken to be a, a fact of knowledge. That then they they assume, oh, that great being, even if they're in that realm of tens of thousands of kalpas or whatever, 
they think, oh, that's the great one, that's the one, the, all, the Almighty, the Creator, the Ordainer of all that are and are to be, because that's what we take to be true. And then it has its effect in later lifetimes. So it, uh, I, I'm uh, assuming that that's the, the kind of um, view that he's talking about, because there's, there's a whole large variety of those that, um, that are there as that Having given, having had a particular kind of experience, that becomes the way. Just like the, the the blind people and the elephant becomes. Oh well, that must be true because that's what I experienced. And then they're not taking a step back and going, well, hang on a minute, <laughs> why do I take that to be true? Or just because everyone around me is saying that, what makes them correct? Or how do I know that's a fact? And for the insight that comes from satipatthana practice. Let's say one has a profound insight direct from direct experience into impermanence, for example. Mm -hmm. um, one sees it directly and one in some way generalizes it happens everywhere and everything's impermanent. Can one conclude, is that a, an insight that is so profound that one can really conclude that, can one not fall into the elephant trap with something <laughs> like that as well? Or, or can one conclude that this really is true always for everything and has always been true? Uh, it's it, with anything. It's it's good to test it out. Like, well, there, there can be the perception. Oh, now it seems really clear to me that this is absolutely true, and it's always been true, and it always will be true. Now, now I feel very sure about that. What, what, uh, is that the fact? Yeah. Uh, let Let's try it out and and, and see if if there's a, a way of finding a flaw in that. So. <clears throat> That even though there might be that profound insight, like uh, in Ajahn Chah's own um, uh, experience, like when you know, he had the reputation of being an arahant, and then, uh, but then when he was asked about his ex his experience of of uh, so completing the practice, then he said that he's tested himself out for three years afterwards, just to. To, to see if uh, there was any uh, any kind of uh, attachment or identification, any kind of grasping going on. So that's some pretty serious testing. <laughs> mm -hmm. so that, uh, but that kind of, uh, of uh, like I was saying earlier, you know, a couple of readings ago, it, the whole approach to knowledge is to, with Buddhism, is to use things as a working hypothesis. Okay, this seems to be true. And let, let's let's work on this basis and see see where it goes, rather than this is true, <laughs> because the, one of the the common um, uh, say descriptions of the wrong views or mistaken views of, of other teachers in the Pali Canon is this assumption only this is true, everything else is wrong. So that even though someone might have a very profound experience, if they grasp it incorrectly, then it leads. Uh, and even though that, that might be a true experience by grasping it or identifying with it, then it can lead to great confusion. Like people oftentimes have spontaneous mystical experiences or, or drug-induced mystical experiences. And that uh, often when they're little children, you know, they have some kind of, um, uh, kind of great opening and, and they, at the age of seven or ten or whatever, then they, they have a, a, a really you know, clear, um, powerful experience but then they've got no context for that, or they, they assume, uh, oh, that was, uh, <clears throat> oh, mummy told me not to talk about that because people will think I'm mad. So, you know, <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually a mad person, so I better not talk about that. 
And so what was a sort of profound or liberating experience gets taken as being a symptom of being crazy. Or it can, at the other extreme, you think, well, actually, I'm the all-enlightened one. You know, I, I am the next Messiah. You know, people don't realize it yet, but <laughs> truly, I, I am the awakened one. And the world just has to understand that. You know, they'll, they'll come around to it. So there's numerous, you know, ca- not, not exactly countless, but numerous, numerous experience, you know, instances where people have had profound insights that are ge- absolutely genuine. You could say, yeah, that was a, a completely undistorted, clear uh, awakening to reality. But then because of, uh, of the, um, the impact of, of uh, the kind of... Um, the habits of grasping or identification and um, the the effects of past attachments, then that takes that 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 say a clear experience of reality, uh, awakening to to truth, and then distorts it or confuses it. There's a, a one of the most helpful sets of teachings. It's in the northern tradition. It's called the Shurangama Sutra, and it's it's like a uh, an expansion of the the um, 62 kinds of wrong view in the Brahmajala Sutta. And it's the last section of the Shurangama Sutra is called the 50 Skanda Demon States. And for each of the five Khandas, there are 10 sets of delusions going from the, the form Khanda, the feeling, perception, mental formations. So the, the, in the, they go from the, the very coarse kinds of uh, confusions and attachments that come from attaching to the body, identification with the body, all the way up to in the, the last two, the Sankara Kanda and the Vijnana Kanda, they're like the kind of problems that, that stream enterers and uh, Sakadagamis, once returners and non-returners, run into. And it's quite, uh, it's, it's quite uh, interesting how it sort of specifies, say for example, um, as someone is already a non-returner, they're an Anagami, um, <clears throat> and, and yet uh, when, they are, when they're giving a Dhamma talk, then they are um, they are pleased by the attention and the um, the, the reverence that is shown to them. Um, there's a, a <clears throat> and that by uh, attaching to that reverence or that that um, inspiration that they in, in, uh, they induce in others, then uh, their their mind inclines towards uh, attachment and dependency. Uh, and so it's a kind of an obst- it's a very refined obstruction, but it's a it's an obstruction. So that uh, in it, but in each of the fifty states, like so, there's each of the five khandas, there's ten states. In each one of them, it says if they know it is a state, it is a good state. If they do not know it is a state, they are bound to fall. So if say an anagami is giving a dhamma talk and notice everyone's inspired, delighted, pleased, then they think, oh, they're happy. Okay, I'm happy for them to be happy, Mudita. Okay, yeah, the, 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 this is a, this is a pleasant feeling, and then doesn't make anything out of it. Then that doesn't feed the quality of conceit. Like there was this question yesterday about conceit, mana. But if there is um, uh, if there is a uh, an attachment, like oh. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm, I'm really appreciated here. Yes, good. good. <laughs> then there's that's mana, because uh, an anagami has not got beyond asmi mana, and so that is feeding that uh, that conceit. So that uh, that 
that what's outlined in the Brahmajala Sutta or in the in the fifty skanda demon states is the kind of um, uh, attachments that that can form, even are based on on very powerful and wholesome experiences. So that just because some some realization has been true, like like I was saying with spontaneous mystical experiences or drug-induced mystical experiences. I would say some of those those can be absolutely valid, that what's realized in that moment can be completely trustworthy. But then the, all the, the latent tendencies and the, the, when that, if you like, when the conditions for that, that clarity of vision uh, end, then the, all the weight of, of conditioning can, can move in and claim it to be a... A, um, a like an enlightenment uh, state that uh, that you, the, then the ego grabs and takes over, uh, or it can be taken as a sign of madness and think I'm crazy, I'm crazy, I, I can't function, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm a hopeless case, and uh, <clears throat> so that the um, uh, the the great skillfulness of the of the Buddha's path is being able to. As I said, provide the conditions that support those sort of insights to be ma- maintained and integrated into the 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 ordinary so sort of everyday living, and so to integrate with your personality, integrate with your social situation, with your looking after your body, you know, relating to other people, taking care of the the duties around the place, so that there's um, that that kind of um, uh, Experience then has a chance to to really ripen and be a, a basis for liberation rather than a basis for more suffering. Does that make sense? Yes. Just because it's good, it doesn't mean to say it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I often, Ajahn Chah would often talk a lot about you know, the problems of having really good meditation experiences. You know, like the, the, when when you have like a really good meditation, you know, then you really you could really get a workout with him, <laughs> because of the tendency to make assumptions, to get complacent, and or to uh, to judge other people, or to get conceited, or, and you know, and I certainly have had experience of that myself. And complacency, like okay, well that's oh god, that one's sorted. That's easy. Just kind of. Kick back here a little bit, and I say, oh, yeah, got got through the woods now. Everything's fine. They go, oh man, that, that's it's a preface to a couple of decades of misery. So, so carrying on. So continuing on sati. The noun sati is related to the verb sarati, to remember. Sarati, S-A-R-A-T-I, Sarati. Sati, in the sense of memory, occurs on several occasions in the discourses and also in the standard definitions of Sati given in the Abhidhamma and the commentaries. This remembrance aspect of Sati is personified by the Buddha's disciple most eminent in Sati, Ananda, who is credited with the almost incredible feat of recalling all the discourses spoken by the Buddha. So he had perfect recall which does occur in, in nature sometimes. Uh, the connotation of sati as memory becomes particularly prominent with the recollections, the anusati. The discourses often list a set of six recollections. Recollection of the Buddha, Buddha anusati, of the Dhamma, Dhamma anusati, 
of the Sangha, Sanghanusati. So when we do the Itipiso Bhagava Arahang Sama Sambhuta, that's Buddhanusati. Dhamma um, Svakato Bhagavata Dhamma Dhammanusati. And for the Sangha, Ujjupatipano Nyayapatipano and so on, that's the Sanghanusati. So those are the standard qualities of the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. So then there is uh, the, the fourth one, is one's ethical conduct, ethical conduct, silanusati. One's liberality, that's chaganusati, that I was talking about the other day, chaga. And of heavenly beings, devanusati. Another kind of recollection, usually occurring in the context of higher knowledges, gained through deep concentration, is the recollection of one's past lives, pube uh, nivasanusati. In regard to all these, it is sati that fulfills the functioning of recollecting. Sorry, it is sati that fulfills the function of recollecting. This recollective function of sati can even lead to awakening, documented in the Theragata with the case of a monk who gained realization based on recollecting the qualities of the Buddha. So there's also marananusati, the contemplation of, of death. Um, is an, another one that's often added to that, uh, to that list. This connotation of sati as memory appears also in its formal definition in the discourses, which relates sati to the ability of calling to mind what has been done or said long ago. A closer examination of this definition, however, reveals that sati is not really defined as memory, but as that which facilitates and enables memory. What this definition of sati points to is that if sati is present, memory, memory will be able to function well. So if you're already thinking, oh, my memory's awful, therefore I've got, I've got no mindfulness, don't worry. <laughs> it's a, I think he quite helpfully points out that memory is not exactly the same thing as, uh, as sati, that you can be mindful and still not remember things. Some people have uh, got a major block on chanting and that you know, they've maybe been in the robes for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and they can... They can just about get through the morning and evening chanting without having to look at the book or the, or the they can sort of do the three of the main paritas, but the rest are just completely lost. Um, and uh, some some people's minds are like that. Uh, but it, I think it's helpful that, that he points out, even though the word sati is is connected to, to sarati to remember, it's not identified with it. But rather, as he says. Um, Sati does, is not really defined as memory, but as that which facilitates and enables memory. So that you can be mindful, but if you've got a very weak memory faculty, uh, you can be very mindful as you do things, but you can still um, <coughs> be uh, forgetful um, and not be able to remember all the words of the chanting, such like. Yes? Would you, would you say that um, Sati in this case would uh, be associated with the word recall? Yes, indeed. Uh, he, he refers to that a little bit later on uh, in this, this reading. Uh, he says, the kind of mental state in which memory functions well can be characterized by a certain degree of parenthesis. Uh, um, this quality becomes evident on those occasions when one tries to recall a particular instance or fact, but where the more one applies one's mind, the less one is able to remember. So the, I'll get onto that in a minute. There's, there's some interesting things about... Uh, different kinds of memory.
Understanding sati in this way facilitates relating it to the context of satipatthana, where it is not concerned with recalling past events, but functions as awareness of the present moment. So that's the second meaning of sati, as rather than just uh, recalling past events, as uh, awareness of the present moment. In the context of satipatthana meditation, it is due to the presence of sati that one is able to remember what is otherwise only too easily forgotten, the present moment. So sati is about remembering this present moment rather than being distracted and off in mental creations about other places and times and people. Sati, as present moment awareness, is similarly reflected in the presentations of the Patisambhida Magga and the Visuddhi Magga, the commentarial treatises, according to which the characteristic quality of sati is presence, upatthana. So if you remember, that was the, um, uh, the etymology of satipatthana, is sati and upatthana. So upatthana means presence, or sitting near, like upasika, upasika. Whether as a faculty, uh, an indriya, or as an awakening factor, bojanga, as a factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, or at the moment of realization. Thus mindfulness being present, upatitasati, can be understood to imply presence of mind, insofar as it is directly opposed to absent-mindedness, mutasati. So absent mind is where you're off in a distracted place, and uh, uh, but mindfulness is where you're, uh, say, fully with what's going on. Presence of mind in the sense that, endowed with sati, one is wide awake in regard to the present moment. Owing to such presence of mind, whatever one does or says will be clearly apprehended by the mind and thus can be more easily remembered later on. Though also it's important to recollect that, uh, uh, that this that doesn't have necessarily any connection to intelligence. There are famous um, people of uh, spectacular intelligence who were extremely absent-minded. You know, Albert Einstein, noted for wandering around Princeton, um, solving some uh, fan, uh, some fantastically complicated equation in his head, and, and had absolutely no idea which street he's wandered onto or which way his home is, but uh, still being Albert Einstein. Or, um, what was his name? Um, John no- uh, Knox, is it? The, the economist? The Wealth of Nations? John- Adam Smith, Adam Smith, yeah. So Adam Smith um, was fantastically uh, absent-minded to the point where um, his mother and his sister was, was his, his sort of permanent minders. They had to keep an eye on him the whole time because he was completely um, unreliable. He would sort of wander off um, with great regularity. He was most uh, one of the most famous incidents was where he he buttered a piece of toast and put it into his teacup. <laughs> And then pour the tea onto it. So didn't quite connect that the, the teacup was not the plate. He was busy solving the, the problem of the wealth of nations. So you can be fantastically intelligent and be a, a very, very absent-minded. But it is helpful to have friends and, and, uh, and minders at that point. Maybe that's the word where minder <laughs> it comes from. Owing to such presence of mind, whatever one does or says will be clearly apprehended by the mind and thus can be more easily remembered later on. 
Sati is required not only to fully take in the moment to be remembered, but also to bring this moment back to mind at a later time, to recollect. Then becomes, uh, <clears throat> to recollect then becomes just a particular instance of a state of mind characterized by collectedness and the absence of distraction. This twofold character of sati can also be found in some verses of the Sutta Nipata, which instruct the listener to set out with sati, subsequent to an instruction given by the Buddha. In these instances, sati seems to combine both present moment awareness and remembering what the Buddha had taught. Uh, another a footnote on that, um, uh, speaking of not being able to remember things, that is quite a common experience when listening to a Dhamma talk, that you can be fully awake and attentive the whole time the talk is going on and very interested and inspired by what's being said. And then somebody asks you after the talk, what did the Ajahn say this evening? And you go... <laughs> it was about sati. <laughs> and so uh, Lumpo Cha very helpfully pointed out, saying, well, don't worry, because that's a very common experience. Even though you can't recall, because it's said it's a... A, um, you've actually got a tape recorder uh, running all the time and that your mind will remember what is said even though you can't, you can't bring it to mind because in a way it's a, it's a sort of a different part of the brain it's a different part of the mind that's doing the remembering and another part that's doing the recalling so, but so you're, you have got a tape recorder going all the time and so when you need uh, the, the, that part of the discourse that is useful to you, you'll remember it but even if you can't just... Uh, pick it up at, at will. So that's a, 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 a helpful instruction. That, uh, I think it's in one of the talks in Bodhinyana, if I remember, <laughs> if I recollect. Yeah. The kind of mental state in which memory functions well can be characterized by a certain degree of breadth, so wideness, in contrast to a narrow focus. It is this breadth that enables the mind to make the necessary connections between information received in the present moment and information to be remembered from the past. This quality becomes evident on those occasions when one tries to recall a particular instance or fact where the more one applies one's mind, the less one is able to remember it. But if the issue in question is laid aside for a while and the mind is in a state of relaxed receptivity, the information one was trying to remember will suddenly spring to mind. So there's an interesting um, relationship between uh, people think of this as a, just sort of a, as folklore that if you go back to the place in the building where you last uh, when you if you come into a room and you forgot what you came into that room to get if you go back to the place where you started from then you might remember and so people think well that's just folk belief but it does it does tend to work and it's uh, and it's because there uh, uh, the um, the way that memory functions is also when a, a, something is brought to mind, the place and the, the, the location where you are is recalled with it. It's like part of the whole mapping of it. So that it's not just uh, a folklore or folk belief that if you go back to that place you will remember this. They've done, they've done experiments to prove it. <laughs> that it's a, it's a, a um, part of the whole memory functioning is that you get cues from, say, you were walking through that doorway when you had that thought. So you go back to that doorway and then the, that image, that visual image, then uh, can trigger the associated thought that was there at the same time when that was planted. The suggestion of the mental state in which sati is well established can be characterized as having breadth 
instead of a narrow focus, finds support in some discourses which relate the absence of sati to a narrow state of mind, parita chetasa, while its presence leads to a broad and even boundless state of mind, appamana chetasa. Based on this nuance of breadth of mind, sati can be understood to represent the ability to simultaneously maintain in one's mind the various elements and facets of a particular situation. This can be applied to both the faculty of memory and to awareness of the present moment. So I think this is also a helpful um, idea, this idea of, that sati is a breadth of mind, so a broadness of, of view. Uh, so it can represent the ability to simultaneously maintain in one's mind the various elements and facets of a particular situation. And this can be applied to both the faculty of memory and to awareness of the present moment. So, um, uh, and yesterday we were talking a bit about how um, in Ajahn Chah's expression of things, you know, sati, sampajanya, and panya, they sort of uh, merge together, or there's a, there's a kind of um, overlap between those, those meanings. And in this, uh, as I was uh, reading this through, I realized, well, this is, uh, in a way, this is how I tend to describe sampajanya. It's not just being aware of a particular action or particular experience, but the, the context within which that is, is known as well. So this, um, what he's calling breadth of mind, it also relates to that sense of context. So, uh, not to make things more confusing, because I know it's nice to have. Uh, I like little boxes myself. So, okay, sati is this, sampajanya is this, panya is this. That's where the dividing line is. <laughs> but uh, life and the universe are not really made in little boxes, even though the Abhidharma would like us to think so. But. Uh, there's a, a certain blurring, and just as in, in uh, if you remember that one of the readings from uh, the uh, Ajahn Chah teachings, he talked about, yeah, on the one hand, the uh, uh, that which cog uh, that which um, acknowledges uh, experience, and that which knows. So, like the the he said the the kind of mindfulness that just acknowledges. He said it's a very simple, it's a very um, commonplace kind of mind that just acknowledges. Okay, this is a sound. That's a very sort of basic and, and coarse kind of uh, acknowledgement. He said you have to train that the one that acknowledges to uh, to be the the one that knows the buddho. So that uh, again, I'd say that's a spectrum there. On the one end, you've got the sati at the most sort of coarse and basic level, um, uh, the one that acknowledges or the, that which is acknowledging, uh, all the way to the uh, the sati panya mindfulness conjoined with wisdom at the most uh, refined end. And so that there's a there's a, a kind of spectrum. I think it's most helpful to see there's a, a spectrum. And what he's describing here, Venerable Analeo is uh, talking about sati as it sort of merges with in that uh, the sampajanya, so that there's an attention to a particular action or an experience, but also the context in which it occurs. And when I was also saying about how you remember things, go back to the place in the building where you last thought of that um, that uh, <clears throat> that particular person's name or the or what you were going to go and get and then that the context triggers the 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 recollection helps you to collect it yes venerable ruchiro um, it's not so much a question but um speaking to ajahn jyoti carlo when he was here and he was telling me about when he was in thailand famous Ajahn, and uh, he asked him 
Where in my body are all my memories kept? <laughs> and the Ajahn said, Oh, the, your memories aren't kept in your body. Your memories are out there. Which I thought was quite interesting. It kind of linked up to what you're saying. Yeah. Going back to the place. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the name of the Ajahn. <laughs> GCHQ. <laughs> um, well, the um, uh, I can't speak from direct experience, but the way I understand these these things is that um, just as our body, you know, in the very fabric of our body, we have the um, the the nature of our ancestors is. Uh, and where we have what we have evolved from is incorporated into our, our physical body, like the the mitochondria in your cells that are the very um, place where the oxygen gets turned into energy. That they are they are the descendants of blue green algae. The, they are the kind of uh, ancestors that we descended from many 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 uh, a couple of billion years ago. Those are our ancestors. And that's not just fantasy, that's <laughs> biological fact. <laughs> but, so just so our antecedents are there in our body, in, in, uh, our body is made up of, of many generations of, um, of uh, causes and effects, one after another after another, for at least a couple of billion years, since of the, those warm tide pools where life sprang forth on this planet, that uh, <clears throat> in a similar way, in the mental dimension, that, that there's a, what we call my mind <laughs> is the, the, the product of an evolutionary process because there are an infinite number of causes and effects. And just as um, the, the mind can remember a certain degree of events, what primary school you went to when you fell over and cut your leg and that scar, where that scar came from and such like. Yeah. That, uh, and you say, well, I can't remember much more than that. That's as, as far back as I can remember. But those who have very sharp faculties, they have the ability to, to in a sense, just like you can put the cells of your body under a microscope and you can read the biological ancestry of the body, they can put their mind under the microscope and... Go back into the um, the resonances of cause and effect to to uh, see where things came from. That's how I read it. Anyway, it's still classed as a Nietzsche, though, even though it's sort of where does the Nietzsche come into it? Sort of been accessed. Those memories are very sort of permanent in a way. They're always accessible. Um. Well, they're. They're no more permanent than anything else. I mean, it's just like a, in the physical world, in there there are s some things that are, sort of stick around for a long time, like a, like protons. You know, they are they're functionally eternal, but they you, know, you don't see protons 
or electrons sort of uh, appearing and disappearing, they stay around for a long, long time, so they say. <laughs> but they are they're in a constant state of change and vibration. They're in, they're in an energetic state, so that they are... Um, so those, those memories or those, those uh, patterns are, are, are formed, but they're, they're also they're, they're organic um, say qualities that have come into being there and they are uh, in a state of activity, if you like, that they are, that, uh, you know, but also when we say those memories, it's like they don't exist unless you're remembering them. It's, it's like you, you can't say that they are somewhere. If you, I mean, it's, it's, it's tricky to talk about. It's like you, you, you know, it's like uh, <clears throat> people say, well, impermanence, that's the, one, that's the one permanent thing. But there is, impermanence is an abstract. There is a thing, you know, this thing which is uh, like a word or a sound or a thought. That, that thing is exhibiting impermanence or change, but it's, it's, a, it's a thing that is changing. So those memories, they, when they are known, they arise, they take shape, they're known through the agency of a particular consciousness. They are changing at that moment. They come into, like if you could remember going back to listen, listening to a Dhamma talk given by the Buddha in the Jetavana, you know, that, that memory of sitting in the Jetavana listening to the Buddha and you say, hey, I can understand Pali, that's cool. You know, <laughs> That that at that moment that that memory is changing. It's like a, there's a sound of the Buddha giving a dhamma talk that you're able to hear and to understand, but that's a that's a, a a pattern of nature in a state of change. So it's not like it's a kind of permanent thing because even within it that particular pattern it's it's a changing quality. Yeah, does that make sense? Just. I mean, I'm, Well, where is doesn't really apply in the world of mind. Awareness only applies in terms of the physical reality. Mind does not have a lo- physical location. We say my mind, but that's just a, or my mind, but that's just a, a kind of um, a figure of speech, really, because if something doesn't have physical form the mind has no physical form and place only relates to physical reality three-dimensional space only relates to rupakanda the namakandas have no connection with they have no relationship to three-dimensional space it doesn't have any because they're not formed so mind is everywhere nowhere i mean it's, you, awareness doesn't apply to mind which is kind of mind-blowing but that's good. Can, can I just wait and see if finish that one first? Because, so does that make sense? Yeah, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> but because like we're saying, where does an enlightened being go when they die? People keep asking the Buddha that. He'd say, well, uh, when the when the mind has completely let go of identification with the body, with time, with identity, with location. Yeah. Where doesn't apply, being doesn't apply. Yeah. But you can still say there's some existence of some kind. Well, that, that, that's why the Buddha wouldn't speak about it. 
So those the words can't. So you cannot say they do not exist when all means when all all how's it go when all um, designate. Uh, say when you cannot say they, they do not exist, but when all. Uh, all definitions, all designations have come to an end, then all means of description have gone as well. You can't. It's like, how can you talk about, because if time doesn't apply, place doesn't apply, individuality doesn't apply, where they go when, <laughs> like none of it means anything. So, so you can't, uh, the Buddha, that's why the, the Buddha was often misunderstood. Saying, well, do you mean that there's Disappear? He said, no. <laughs> but you can't, words and concepts can't describe the actuality of it. So that it is mind-blowing because our speech and our thoughts are all based around our existence in the physical realm and the perceptions of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. So we, like the, the blind people with the elephant, we say, no, this is the real world. You know, I'm here, you're there. This is Monday. We're in Amravati. Yeah. Three thousand years ago, this wasn't Amravati. The Romans hadn't even shown up. The Buddha hadn't even been born. <laughs> this was the Bronze Age part of. Uh, of uh, wasn't even England. <laughs> so that the way the mind forms reality is what we're challenging in in insight meditation. And that, so when when you, you you when you have a question like, well, where are the memories? It's helpful to take a step back and say, well, what do, what is meant by where? And, and yet, the memories themselves are false recollections because they come from the point of view of I. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're hanging about in this completely beyond space time, <laughs> which is what I don't understand. So you can them out of this beyond space-time mind, and yet the time-bound kind of memories. It's mysterious, isn't it? Yeah. Well, maybe have your question first. Uh, yeah. actually, sorry, it's not a question, but I have asked that question from other people, and the answer I got is very similar to what, what, what this monkey was saying. But you've got there are two kinds of memories. The memory from this life, which is probably in our brain somewhere until we die, and memories from previous life, which is probably in the ether, like this can come up with this thing. Yeah, it, well, it, to, to, to me, it's... I mean, also, you can say that the uh, uh, our events of our lifetime are also imprinted in the body, yeah. and that the um, there's a lot of re- relationship between the, the whole body, not just the brain, but the whole body and uh, and memory. But I feel it's a more helpful it's a more helpful consideration to to at least I find it's it's, it's useful to uh, to um, reflect that uh, rupa kanda is the, the the form the world of form is where space applies, but in the world of mind here and there doesn't apply. Just to take a simple. Uh, a simple statement like that, and just to to sit on that. So, where is your mind? <laughs> and that, uh, 
And because when you when it's looked at and explored, then you, you tend to think, oh yeah, I tend to think of my mind in my body, and then that's the world out there. But really, you can't apply awareness. You can't apply location to mind. And there's a a um, in the, the the Buddha's discourse to Bahia. Um, when the, this uh, yogi by here stopped the Buddha on the on the street and, and asked him for Dhamma instruction, and uh, the Buddha said to to by here, in the seen there is only the seen, in the heard there is only the heard, in the sensed there is only the sensed, in the cognized there is only the cognized. When you by here see that in the in the seen there is only the seen and so forth, then you will realize that there is no thing here. There's no person who's the experiencer and when you realize there is no thing here you will similarly see there is no thing there there's no solid external reality <clears throat> and when you see there is no thing there you will uh, find by here you cannot be located in the world of this or in the world of that or any place between the two this by here is the end of suffering it's a rough translation <laughs> so that uh, Again, it's mind-blowing, where it's like the letting go of subjectivity, the, the sense of a, a me here who's the experience, a, a sense of a solid that, that there's seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and that the, 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 uh, the, the I can't be located in the world of the subject or the object or any place between the two. And when that, that, that uh, I is not created and that, con- that conceiving is not formed then right there is the, the end of dukkha it is mind blowing but that's good <laughs> I think blown is the natural state of the mind but we just uh, have to wake up to that <laughs> so we can leave it there for today I'll just get that the, that quote for the, the one about um, you cannot say they do not exist that's at the end of the Upasiva Sutta from the Sutta Nipata. So I'll just. I keep trying to remember it, but. No. <laughs> I can never remember it 100% accurately. So. For reasons I do not know. Okay. Even though this is one of my favorite passages from the, uh, the suttas, uh, Upasiva asks the Buddha, those who have reached the end, do they no longer exist or are they made immortal, perfectly free? The Buddha replies, those who have reached the end have no criterion by which they can be measured. That which could be spoken of is no more. You cannot say they do not exist, but when all modes of being or phenomena have been removed, all ways of speaking have gone too. So sit on that for the evening. That's the Upasiva Sutta from the Sutta Nipata. So, uh, if you want to check it up on the references, uh, verse 1076 from the Sutta Nipata.